all areas for achieving gender equality, like having uh, women's access to economic resources, advancing women's political participation, having more mobility in uh, public spaces, for example, it cannot be achieved. And women, they cannot realize their human rights if they are not free from violence. That was Calliope Mingeru, chief of the Ending Violence Against Women section here at UN Women. That amazing interview with her and very apropos. Indeed, because we are here because this is our International Women's Day episode. That is correct, which is a day that has been recognized by the United Nations uh, since the mid-70s, right? I believe 1975. And it's, it's exciting. It's our first International Women's Day episode. And it's, we're going to take a little bit of a different spin on it. In some sense, every day is Women's Day, um, or should be. Or should be. But what we want to do in this episode is to think about why women are not achieving equality in the way that they should be. And a huge part of that is is violence against women. So first of all, let's define for our audience what violence is. There's plenty of different types. Right? Like uh, physical, sexual, maybe the ones that you're most... Exactly. I uh, think the physical and sexual are the ones that come to mind immediately. Um, And those are very grave. And we are going to talk more about them in this episode. But what we also don't realize is that there are forms of violence that are more institutional, that are and just as pervasive, such as not having the right to vote. Which would be civic, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Uh, Economic. Economic, when you don't have access to job opportunities or the ability to even control your own finances. And finally, there's, in some sense, a health violence, because when women, again, don't have access to health services that protects them when they're pregnant, allows them to have their own reproductive rights. Yeah, and what what we found in our interviews for this episode is that oftentimes it's not just one type. They're often coupled. Exactly. Right? And all of these forces are sort of working in a lot of ways to uh, limit the opportunities of women in a lot of areas. Right, and really this is curtailing their human rights, their basic human rights to live equitably and to live prosperously in in this world. I mean, this is the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration. um, In 1995. In 1995. And as Hillary Clinton said at the Fourth Women's Conference, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And that's a, a true statement then. And it's certainly a true statement now. A very basic true statement, right? Should not be in up for question uh, in up any for question way. and yeah. or debate. And so yes. again what we're going to discuss further in this episode is the one of the aspects of a lack of human rights which again is violence against women and the way to do that uh, you know though is is I think uh, initially through numbers exactly. to help sort of ignite the flame of discussion. Here's a question to you all. Yep. How many women do you think experience physical or sexual violence at, in their lifetime? My answer when we first started talking about this I thought it was going to be 300 million, maybe 500 million? No, the number is going to shock you. One in three women, 35% of women in the entire world experience physical or sexual violence. It's such a staggering statistic. So if you have a grandmother, an aunt, and a sister, one of those people will have experienced physical or sexual violence. Yes. And what that translates to, you said 300 million, maybe even 500 that translates to 1.75 billion women on this planet have experienced physical or sexual violence. And so, again, we have identified and addressed the fact that this is a global issue, right? 
let's hear some numbers to that speak towards this. And what we did was we talked to some experts. We get the policy perspective from UN Women with Calliope, and we um, are going to hear later from Mariam Seifi, who is um, herself a survivor of sexual violence. You know, we have these 1.75 billion women who've experienced this trauma. Where do they go? You know, like, what can they actually do to report anything? And what we realize and what Calliope is going to tell us is that not many women do report. Right. And even fewer report to uh, an authority authority that can uh, actually within their community. It was another staggering statistic. Let's hear some numbers from, from, again, Calliope Mangero. Only 40% of women who have experienced violence, they reveal and they report this kind of violence. And out of this 40%, less than 10% of these women they, they report their incident of violence to the police. Right. Staggering. I'm at a, yes, uh, when you first hear this, you're, you're almost at a loss for words. But when you start to try to imagine the, the pressure within these communities. Yes. Exactly. I mean, when you at first blush, these, these numbers are overwhelming. And then, when, as you said, when we drill down, we start to unpack why this is happening that women aren't reporting, it's because when violence is in your home, in your community, it's very difficult to take that step and make a report. Which is why it's important to make sure that we you label the broad-based type of violence like we did up top, because it may be economic reasons mm. that this is not reported. It may be something involving their health care mm. or their child, which I would lump into health care, or even civic. Within their community, there's a shame aspect or a fear aspect. And again, as Calliope Mangeru, chief of the Ending Violence Against Women section at UN Women, is going to tell us why women aren't actually able to take that step and, and report these incidents of violence, because it really is seen as a step that could ostracize them. And so let's hear what she has to say. It's gone beyond just your family unit and your intimate relationship sometimes. We see that it's also attached to certain communities. Mm-hmm. It's almost like betraying a whole community that it's already very much targeted by state authorities, for example. So this is another aspect of the pressure that women have in order to to report incidents of violence to to authorities. They are afraid that the whole community might be targeted. When she puts it so succinctly like that, where, you know, you're afraid that your community, you're afraid for and of your community in some sense, that if you are in a situation in which your community is is already, like she said, targeted by the state, putting them under further scrutiny will not necessarily further the cause of the community. Well, but the idea that essentially by standing up for yourself, you're jeopardizing the larger community, exactly. which in this rationalization would be like the greater good. In some sense, yeah. In some sense, right? Like that's the motivation, not that it's correct. As you were saying, when we have this kind of physical violence, let's say coupled with economic violence, if you don't have access to any other source of income other than what your partner is doling out to you, maybe piece by piece, when you can't report or you you, you choose not to report because in that way, once you do, you no longer have the funds to, let's say, not only feed yourself, but feed your children. You're subjecting in your family. yourself to a possibility of being homeless right. and having no income. Right. Those are dire consequences. And so we can see why 
women. And I'm not even sure consequence is the right word there, is it? It's like, a, I mean, it's certainly a dire it's a, outcome. It would be a consequence yeah, of the action. Of the not reporting. Yes, yeah. but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But we can then, as you said, understand better why women are choosing not to report because there, again, isn't necessarily the institutional infrastructure to support them reporting. Hey, quickly, Sinduja, let's define institutions for the listeners. Sure. These are the features of a society that are really deep-rooted and sort of created a framework for living, right? And so we can think about that as your governance structures. They might be local, state, federal, your healthcare structures, your legal structures, all of those things. The, you know, when you go... Even and, the institution of the family absolutely. and the way it's viewed absolutely. In, in your community, in your religion, in your In whatever in your context, world. exactly. And so that's when we're saying then there's no institutional infrastructure to support reporting, what we mean is that there is really this breakdown and inability for these different sorts of sides of a community to talk to support women as they want to make reports of physical or sexual violence. And the upside of this is there is potential for all of these institutions to be a a force of good and positive Mm. and to reinforce the idea of reporting. Yeah, absolutely. What I want to come back to, Diwal, is kind of who these women are experiencing violence from. It was the most fascinating part, or, or maybe shocking is the right word, yeah. of this whole piece. Right, who the perpetrators are. And of these women who, you know, who experience physical and sexual violence, 70% of them, it's coming from an intimate partner. It's coming from someone they know intimately in their lives. And as, as again, Kaliopi Minjeru will tell us, this is really... Unbelievable. And I think it is contrary to the general narrative in people's minds. And this is shocking because sometimes we're having this that violence against women and girls, it can happen by a stranger hiding behind the bushes when they're walking during the night, which of course can happen as well, and you referred to before. But mostly it happens in the places where we live and we expect to be uh, safely living with our intimate partners, with our fathers, with our brothers, with our extended family. And that's where uh, uh, violence happens. In in this last quote, Diwal, of, of Calliope's, we hear all of the pieces coming together, right? We understand that violence against women is a global, ubiquitous issue. One in three women experiences some sort of violence in their lives. We understand now that there is no institutional infrastructure to support them reporting. In in many situations, right? Right, exactly. Referring back to the 40% um, um, rate of of reporting. Exactly, less than 40%. Less than 40%, and then only 10% go to the police, which means the stat up top of one in three women where you gave the family narrative, it's actually one in two most likely. It's much more likely to exactly be much, much higher. And finally... When the people perpetrating those that violence is someone that you know intimately, as she was saying, it's your father, your brother, um, your uncle, it, that, it, it can feel like an act of betrayal to make a stand, to take a statement against somebody in your family, especially when you're from a, whatever close-knit community. When people don't talk about it, when there isn't a culture of conversation, then the behavior simply continues. Exactly. And uh, the the other piece, if we're we're talking about Miriam's situation, that we found that was I think is a, is a real um, twist, but a reminder. It's not always men. Exactly. Unfortunately, that's very true. Is that women can also be perpetrators of sexual violence against other women, um, in particular girls. And what we are going to hear right now is is Miriam Safi's story. She's an activist. Um, and um, against female genital mutilation. 
for those of you who may not be familiar with the process, it, it involves there are four different types. Um, and really, it, it's about making cuts either in the clitoris or in the clitoral hood. Um, and sometimes the cuts go further. Um, and it is a very dangerous process. There's no reason to do this process. It can be life-threatening. There's no, been a recent case in Egypt exactly, where a young where girl died. Exactly, a 12-year-old girl died. She bled to death. There are 200 million cases. Yeah. This is an issue that just transcends class and country borders um, and communities. And, you know, just for for those of us who happen to be U.S.-based, 500,000 girls are at risk of being of being cut in this country. And so this is not something that is um, like like we're saying at all at all limited. Just as a forewarning, her story is difficult to hear, but it is important to hear. Um, so we're going to hear Miriam's story now. And yeah, let's listen. In my case, what happened to me, um, I was seven years old and I had a me- I blocked the memory out. So my parents had sent my brother and I to India for the summer. And then, um, you know, my aunt, you know, uh, lured me into her basement clinic. She was a physician. And then, you know, she, you know, she bribed me with like a chocolate bar or something. And then, um, and I was seven. So very, you know, kind of, uh, didn't question it at the authority. And, um, and then that's where she cut me. So it was, it was traumatic. And I actually blocked the whole memory out until I was sitting in an anthropology course in, at the university of Texas, which is where I'm from Texas, born there. Um, and you know, I had a memory jolt and I re- remembered what happened. And I assumed my parents knew. I was like, they must know. And I uh, talked to my mom, and she's a physician herself, and um, and she had no idea. So I found out that my aunt did this without their consent. And that often can happen, actually. It's it's something that, you know, in, in some insular societies, like in the Bora community, you know, it was never talked about. So, you know, after I kind of had the memory jolt, confronted my mom, it was still kind of hush-hush. Like, no one really discussed it. There wasn't social media. There wasn't sort of a hashtag, you know, just sort of have catalyze a conversation. So, and I was so embarrassed by the whole thing. So I was, you know, never thought I'd actually publicly share what happened. And um, and it was only my father who kind of, he was just, you know, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You didn't do anything. And in fact, you know, if you speak out, maybe you'll, you know, help others um, or maybe, you know, raise enough awareness so that parents can have these conversations, communities can have these conversations, and then begin to kind of create, you know, sort of a, a change in norms, because really that's what that's, you know, the conversation that's being catalyzed is about uh, shifting these cultural norms or these norms. As you said, Dewell, I mean, that's really the crux of where policy needs to go is how do we shift these cultural norms? How do we get people to not only have a conversation about violence against women, whatever form it takes, recognizing that it is a systemic issue, and then making active change, correcting policy so that women are supported? And that's exactly what UN Women is doing, is is trying to do um, and is, is doing well. Um, they have something that's called a central services package. And what that intends intends to do is really implement a set of minimum standards in a country's institutional infrastructure. Because again, as we've heard, this is an institutional systemic issue. When you don't have infrastructure you know, uh, that can support women reporting, they won't report. Yes. And, and even often in cases, like maybe just developing a reporting system. And one of the Nice things about uh, this program is it's flexible based upon where it's at. Absolutely. And I think that's so crucial is that, you know, this is not a one-size-fits-all package. Yes, we want to make sure that we have a minimum set of standards that we're implementing. So what is what might that look like? Yeah, right. 
Let's um, talk about it. You know, so what that means is that when a woman goes to report um, an incidence of violence to a hospital, let's say, then that hospital is transmitting that information to the justice sector, to the police department. Now, why why is that good? Why is that helpful? Yeah. One is that it means that there's no loss of information. Um, and two, it prevents a woman from having to tell her story again and again and again, which in itself is traumatic. And if for some reason there's any sort of minor discrepancy in a detail, that is what a prosecutor or, you know, uh, rather a, another lawyer is going to kind of potentially jump on because there's not there's a very little validation from women when they do tell their story. And so we need to make sure that they are supported and trusted. Yes. And then to, to piggyback on that. If we're extrapolating this out, ideally, there will be a social services piece. Exactly. And one of the things that you would do in this social service setting is to combat types the types of violence that we discussed earlier. Because if this has happened, perhaps there's an economic aspect to it, whereas if, if someone has finally reported, the concern is still there. What am I going to do for money? How am I going to be able to provide for myself on my own mm-hmm. in a situation that may be pushing it or may make it very difficult for you to do so. And the other aspect, you know, it's uh, we as as much as we're saying we want to support women in in um, being empowered and telling their story. The other aspect of it is that we engage men and boys in this conversation. Um, and, you know, again, Calliope also told us about how UN Women has essentially a life skills training where the idea is that you are engaging boys from a very young age as to how to treat women. In most of these communities, it, that is the behavior you're trying to change most because those are the people who either have the power right now or possibly will right. until the scales get tipped correctly. Right. And I think it is, uh, speaking of that uh, changing male behavior, um, in, in Mariam's story, it's a, it's a huge piece of the story that her parents' actions, and specifically her father's, mm-hmm. were to encourage her to speak out. Absolutely. Um, I think a, a couple of things have come out from, you know, came out from these conversations that we had with Calliope and, and Mariam. The first is, when you have when you are now able to change the institutional infrastructure so that it supports women and women are now now feel more empowered to report you may end up interestingly with an increase in the incidence of violence in, reported correct and so actually in some odd way that's a success because it's, it, it could be a sign to success down the road exactly because yes. it means that now women feel that they will be trusted that they will be validated by the institutions when they go and report empowered enough to feel like reporting this won't essentially end their life or make them homeless right. that there is a pathway other than what they currently exactly. are on exactly and, and, so, and there's I have like a fun parallel stat yeah. that I would like to throw in here that I think a lot of our audience can can will just be able to understand, you know, uh, between 2017 and 2018, there was a jump from 1.4 percent to 2.7 percent uh, in victims of rape and sexual assault in the United States between 2017 and 2018. Wow, that is is more than significant. I mean, it's essentially a doubling. A doubling. 
And what, why do you think that happened? Well, institutions are being changed. And during that era... The Me Too movement exactly. has happened and influenced all these institutions, whether it's governmental, whether it's your a business, or even uh, whether it is the institution of the home. Right, where you feel, again, just supported um, and, and willing to take on the risk of reporting. And empowered enough to do so. Exactly. It means that, again, women are feeling comfortable enough that they that they can take the step to really exposing themselves to to the risk of reporting because you you are. Um, and as we talked about with Miriam, you you become the story in some sense. And that that story becomes you and in a way that if you can if you have tr- trust and faith in institutions that um, that will help you navigate that process. And as you said, give you a path to your own economic empowerment, your own civic empowerment, and hopefully, you know, then your own, you're really having a fully, a, a life that is um, with all of your human rights, that's really where we want to go. And by discussing the, these issues and bringing them out into the open, those institutions that we speak of uh, will be more likely to view you in an equal fashion. Mm. We have the institutional side, we have the policy side that you and women, you know, we talked about with our central services package. Um, and what people like Mariam are doing, being on the ground, having those one-on-one conversations. And again, um, similar to what we were saying where UN Women is, is engaging men and boys with, with sort of a life skills training, um, you know, what those conversations look like on the ground in terms of recognizing and going back to what you were saying, Dewal, that people who engage in this behavior – um, or contexts in which these these behaviors have been institutionalized are not these communities are not bad they um, they happen to have a, an institutionalized behavior that can change there are there are many communities when we research this that view this act almost as a status symbol mm. and there is a a false belief that it actually enhances sexual experience when you become an adult. Right. And you have to combat this type of thought process. With science. With science. With evidence. And this is goes back to, you know, the World Health Organization, which is the UN Organization for Health, um, in uh, 2017 released a statement that said there is no form of FGM, of fem- female genital mutilation, that can at all be considered um, safe, that... that all forms either lead to physical or psychological trauma or both. Having that piece of evidence that it arms you in a way that kind of then allows you to have a different sort of conversation with the community that has been engaging in you know institutionalized sexual violence against women for centuries. Yes. And uh, to try to circle back where we started with International Women's Day, mm. International Women's Day prompted this conversation. I specifically was uncomfortable having it. I know. I appreciate you being open to it. And I think it you have to run headlong into the difficult topics. And things like in, International Women's Day are so important because they force you to go down these roads mm. to consider why does International Women's Day exist from a, from a very broad context and then go to the path of well let's talk about violence with women well what is fgm it, it's such a larger larger scale problem than what one would think discussing this as a whole really highlights to me the importance of why all events like international women's day to speak very broadly are so important right they at least start the conversation um and you know there are several organizations if you 
part of what we're trying to do here, Dwell, is not just open the conversation, but to uh, promote and and encourage our audience to join the conversation, right? And so there are several organizations um, that Mariam told us about that allow allow us to. Um, Get more information so that, you know, the first thing you can go to the World Health Organization to get um, facts and, and, and data about FGM and, and um, how there's no, up, there's no upside, like you said. The UNWomen.org, which gives us information about the different types of policies they're engaging in and um, a slew of facts and data about violence against women. And finally, there's an organization called Sahio which brings storytellers to light, people who are survivors of, in particular, FGM, to show, again, that this is something that happens in Egypt. This is something that happens in the United States. This is something that happens in South India, um, in South Asia, in India, for example. Every continent of the world. And every continent of the world. This has been an intense episode. It's, it's you heavy. Well? How do you feel? I feel proud. Good. I'm, I'm happy that we did this. I hope all of the audience will go down one of these pathways that we've given you. It, just Google the topic mm. if you don't want to use the resources that we've given to you. You can go to the uh, UN uh, website. You can go to the World Health Organization. There are so many areas. And and really, just talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it with your friends, your family. And remember that every conversation has an impact. And someone is going to take one little nugget from that conversation and pass it on to the next person. And that's really how change happens. Thanks so much for taking this time. Uh, we know um, that this might have been a difficult episode to hear, but we really appre- appreciate you as an audience spending this time with us, and we will see you next time. That's right. Discussions worth having aren't always fun, but they can always be engaging. Ciao.